I'm Taffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, the show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah. We'd like to take this time before we start to acknowledge that the studio where we record is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, it's important that we remember that the lands that we occupy are not our own and that we engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. We encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and the Indigenous communities of that area. I'm thinking about this a lot this week because Montreal recently put well, Quebec recently put a curfew in place, uh, 8 p.m. curfew for controlling COVID, but there are no exceptions for the homeless population. And in Montreal especially, we have a very large homeless population, and that homeless population is primarily Indigenous. There was a very publicized uh, incident last week where an Inuit man uh, froze to death in a, in a porta potty outside of a shelter, which was not permitted to give him a bed. The Premier of Quebec has made a statement that he will not make exceptions for the homeless population because then people will, quote unquote, pretend to be homeless, and uh, has said that the shelter system should be able to offer a bed to every homeless person, which has never been the case. Uh, It was never the case even before COVID regulations were in place. Now there are very strict regulations limiting the number of beds available because of outbreaks in shelters. And... I really have Mm -hmm. been thinking a lot about how horrible it is that in a country as wealthy as Canada, the people who are freezing to death on the streets are the people who were here first. And that's a part of our colonial heritage that really, really needs to be addressed and really needs to be fixed. There was also a study that came out similarly that shows that 40% of all fines given by the police in Montreal are given to the homeless community. And these fines are between $1,000 and $8,000. Anybody who has lived at the bare minimum knows that that's not a manageable amount for people who who have homes. I mean, that's but that's the kind of fine that keeps people on the street. And it's really clear to me that homelessness exists because the government says it should and Mm -hmm. because the government punishes homelessness. And homelessness, especially in Canada, is is an instrument of colonial rule. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about uh, in terms of this this week. And I, I, uh, I really hope that we see a lot of noise around this until it is fixed. Um, and I guarantee that wherever you are, if you live in a colonial nation, the same problems exist in different coats. I don't feel like I have anything to add because I think you've said everything. But yeah, we need to make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And if we say the land acknowledgement and never do anything about it, then the land acknowledgement is harmful, not beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So, <laughs> just to make mm-hmm. that clear. So this week, we're wrapping up what we've been calling a mini-series because it's only three books. But uh, we're doing our third book in this series on spirituality, faith, religion, um, and self-knowledge among teenagers. And we read a book that we've actually kind of had on the list, on the on the B list for a long time, um, Heretics Anonymous by Katie Henry. 
This is a novel about a uh, teenage guy, Michael, who moves to a new school in grade 11, and it is a Catholic high school. He is not a Catholic. Uh, He is an atheist, and he comes across a little group of scrappy misfits in the school who have a secret group called Heretics Anonymous, and they sort of go through the school year addressing things about their Catholic school that they don't like, figuring out ways to be an interfaith community, and also, you know, making friends and falling in love. I'm very excited to talk about this one with you, Bailey. Yeah, I'm, I am likewise very excited to talk about it with you. I really liked this book. I liked this book a lot. I thought it was good. And I thought it was very interesting. I don't know what your first impressions were, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. I also really enjoyed it. I think it's been a while since we've done a school drama, like a book that where the, the primary conflict really revolves around school. And I love that I had forgotten how much I love that as the setting for a novel, but I really, really enjoyed reading a school drama. And I specifically, mm-hmm. this I mean, I really enjoyed this one. I think this one was very well written. There were a lot of things I liked about it. Not really anything that I can think of that I like definitely did not like about it, actually. Yeah, I don't like me either. Like, there were some things that I think I would have liked to have seen, like, maybe fleshed out a little bit more or, like, developed a little further. But there's nothing that I was like, no, why did you do this? I don't like it. Yeah, I would really love a sequel, you know? Like, I want to see where they go next year. Um, It's a pretty short book. And I think we've read a lot of very, like, big, meaty books recently. So, like, getting the, like, 300-page max... Uh, novel is definitely like something to adjust to Um, especially after you weren't here for this one but like last week we did a 550 page book Um, so but it was really nice to just have a little like light read so let's Mm -hmm. dig into it a little bit more now I'm very excited to be doing this with you specifically because I think this this is a book about sort of grappling with religion and Mm -hmm. finding your place and figuring out what you want your role to be and you and I are both people who grew up churched and I feel like have Mm -hmm. have very different paths of what it means to sort of grow up churched and queer and figure out what your role is in it where like you have decided that your calling is to become a minister and be in the church and do good things and make it the welcoming community that it should be and I have Mm -hmm. decided that church is just not the best avenue for me to pursue faith interests and I want to sort of remove myself and find alternate paths. So I'm I'm excited to talk about it from that because I feel that both of those perspectives are represented in the book. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to talk with you about Eden, who I think is you share a lot of similarities with of someone who, you know, grew up in a very religious, very conservative religious environment and then decided to um, yeah, that the church was not a good fit for you, but decided to sort of explore and rediscover, like, the pagan roots of mm-hmm. your ancestors. And I think that's really cool. Like, I love Eden as a character. I think she's really, really neat. Um, and I think she, like, brings a lot to the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Eden is the character who, uh, uh, as you said, she's she is a teenager. They're all teenagers because they're in high school. But mm-hmm. like she kind of privately follows her own path of paganism, despite having to still do Catholic motions with her parents and, and family. I felt you're right. I felt a lot of alignment with Eden, not just the 
paganism, which I do want to talk about because I love, love the way paganism is portrayed in Eden's character. I think it's just such an Mm. excellent, well-rounded view. Um, But also her being the youngest of a large family and like... True. Yeah, kind of having her own like private thing. I don't know. I really liked her character. And Mm -hmm. I mean... You're not Catholic, but I feel that you kind of align with Lucy in certain ways. Absolutely. I think I align with her in interesting ways. And she also, um, yeah, there were points of real, like, empathy that I feel with her. And also, like, Lucy made me think a lot about, like, imagine what I would be like if I had grown up in a different kind of Christianity. Because, like, I think Lucy is... So one of the main, so Lucy is one of the main characters, um, and she is, she's someone who has grown up very Catholic, and she remains quite Catholic, but has, but also has a lot of things that she disagrees about the Catholic Church with. Like, she's really frustrated with the Catholic Church's stance on women, obviously, and on queer folks, um, and just a lot of the really restrictive things about the Catholic Church, but she is someone who is deeply committed to her faith, and actually, like, she wishes that she could be a priest. Like, that's what she wants to do if she were allowed to. Um, and I think Lucy is... And so, like, one of the main things that gets brought up a lot with Lucy that's a point of contention with the other main character, Michael, is, well, like, why do you stay in the Catholic Church if you... Um, if there are all these things that you don't agree with? Like, why do you stay? And I think that's such an interesting question. And it's like, it makes me think a lot because it's something that I didn't have to wrestle with to the same degree because I like I consider myself really fortunate in that I happened to grow up in a strand of Christianity that aligns pretty well with my values. Like there are definitely things that I disagree with my church about and things that I think my church needs to be pushed on. But I grew up in a very politically left church, a very queer friendly church. So I grew up in a in a church that aligns with a lot of my values already. I didn't have to struggle with the same kind of things I think that Lucy has to struggle with of feeling really at home in her church in a lot of ways and and having a lot of things that she really values about it, but also having things that she deeply disagrees with. I would also love a book about Lucy like five years later and like see where she's at with, yeah. with that. I feel like Lucy is on the path towards becoming Episcopalian. That's, that I was just going to say, like, I, I think Lucy's going to end up an Anglican priest. Yeah, but... well, yeah. Oh, well, she's in, in the States, so she'll be Episcopalian. But I really think she's going to discover Episcopalians in college and be like, oh, I can be a priest. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you're in the United Church and lucked out with a very progressive congregation. I do want to make the note that the United Church of Canada, while historically, uh, I mean, has a history of being affirming of gay and lesbian relationships from the 1970s, 1980s, there were still congregations that were very conservative and homophobic right up until the early 90s. And it was in, I think, 91 that there was like a a final kind of declaration from the hires up of the United Church being like, no, we are cool with the gays. You make a really good point because there Mm -hmm. are even still, um, and this this is something, it's one of those things that I disagree with my church about. (laughs) Individual churches do still have the freedom to be maybe not openly homophobic, but to be not fully affirming. They have the freedom to choose to not 
uh, perform same-gender marriages. Um, and I, I mean, that's something I disagree with my church about. I find it really interesting. Like, this is something Caddy and I talked about last week, but the the background, the, like, childhood religious experience, I think, forms so much of how we interact with religion as adults. And I mm-hmm. think that's really something we see with you and me, right? And a lot of the people I know yeah. who grew up super conservative like I did went through a period like I did, again, of being like, yes, we're going to be in a progressive church and fix everything, and then just burn out and are like, no, I need a break, which is where I am. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really, like, the only reason I brought that up is I think it's really interesting even how much congregation to congregation affects. And I know because I I have Catholic family, like that's the same with the Catholic church. Like I know people who go to Catholic churches that are just like, yeah, we're Catholics, but we're like, we're cool with women and gays and we're not going to pry too much into your life. And the priest is going to preach about it as much as he can get away with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are also Catholic congregations. And this is something we see in the book. So the character Teresa, I love her and I want to know more about her. So I want to hear all your thoughts on her. Teresa is the closest to how I was raised. She is from a hyper-conservative family, and she is trying... She's the one who's really intent on the school staying exactly the way it is. And she pushes back against the Heretics Anonymous group when they do things, and she gets very upset, and she has a really big personal stake in it and a really big personal vendetta, uh, and has a lot of trouble with people who break the rules as she perceives them. And about halfway through the book, we learn that Teresa comes from a hyper-conservative family and was homeschooled most of her life and had to fight really hard to be allowed to go to school uh, because her parents were really worried about what she was going to be exposed to. So for Teresa, the importance of the school staying the way it is is that she wants her parents to let her continue going to the school. And I really love that she got humanized like that. And she was a character that I really recognize. Uh, from my upbringing you know I knew uh, people like that because the stakes get so high when it's my only social interaction is riding on this right Mm -hmm. and I really appreciated that I really appreciated the diversity of like observant Catholics that we got in the school from Teresa Mm -hmm. who for whom traditional Catholicism is very important but like not because of her personal relationship to it because of the high stakes with her family which is something that I think doesn't get explored enough with teenagers of like how much your family's pressure affects your religious beliefs and how much your family's Mm -hmm. pressure affects whether those religious beliefs are really yours or if they're sort of something that you're doing because you have to and I'd love to see Teresa five years in the future you know and see where she goes from this. I do. I really love how we get that humanization of Teresa partway through and this this realization that like, yeah, she's not who she is doesn't come out of nowhere. And and how she interacts with other people comes is like very largely self-protective. Like, I think that's really important that we get that detail about her. Mm -hmm. So there's a very cool, very nuanced exploration of Catholicism in the book. 
Mm-hmm. But there's also other religions that come in. Uh, and these yes. are in the characters of Michael, who's the main character, who is an atheist and kind of has to learn how to not be a dick to religious people because he's never had to do that before. Max, who is a joy and a delight. Uh, we oh, meet him. Max. He says he is part of the United Church. Michael says, what is the United Church? And he says, I don't really know, but they give me all their old computers. So I decided I'm one of them. Sorry, this is where <laughs> I have to just make a quick correction. He is a Unitarian. Oh, he's a Unitarian. Different from the United Church. Because the United Church and this is where the U.S. and Canada get confusing. No, there are Unitarians here too. Yeah, but not as many. And in the States, like when I lived in the States, their United Church is like less of a defined group. And the Unitarians is more what we would think of like UCC. Even though Unitarians are not as Christian as UCC. Mm -hmm. Unitarians are much more interfaith. There is also a UCC in the States. United Church of Christ. Um, yeah, but who are very yeah. similar to anyways. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's confusing. Churches are confusing to me. But yes, yeah, so he's Unitarian. Yeah. Uh, that mm-hmm. is an important note with what he says when he says, I don't really know. Because every time I talk to a Unitarian, they're like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes we read poetry and sometimes we read the Bible and sometimes we read the Bhagavad Gita. And like, I just butchered that pronunciation. I am so sorry. And I love that. I just, I love. I mm-hmm. love that we have this range of people who are religious, like Lucy, because it's very deeply meaningful to her. We have Avi, who is Jewish, and he mm-hmm. talks about it as very much being a cultural identification for him. Um, mm-hmm. And Max, who's just like, yeah, they're nice to me, so I so I chill with them. And, and Eden, then Eden, whose choice is very personal and very private. Her practice is a, mm-hmm. a private spiritual practice. So I think it's time to talk about Eden. So Eden is pagan. And when we first meet Eden, Lucy refers to her as Wiccan. And she snaps very quickly, I'm not Wiccan. I'm Celtic Reconstructionist pagan. And I really, really love that Katie Henry took the same care with her pagan character as she did with the Christian characters and the Jewish character. Uh, and mm-hmm. she, she really gives paganism the same weight and respect as the other religions, which I feel like often when we see paganism, especially in young adult books, because it's something that young adults often explore and experiment with, um, we see it kind of written as like a goth phase rather than... Yeah like a belief system that's very diverse because paganism really is as diverse as like Christianity or Judaism is in all the practices and like when I say Christianity I'm thinking like there's there's Coptics and there's like Southern Baptists yes and Coptics and Southern Baptists religious practice look completely different and they don't look like the same religion Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, yeah and that is how much diversity there is in paganism uh Mm -hmm. and as I said before in our witch series Wicca only emerged in the late 50s late 1950s um and I think it's dumb that that's what everybody goes to around paganism it's just because it has Mm -hmm. good PR (laughs) I really I really do like yeah, how this book, like you said, it's treating paganism with a lot of respect and weight. And I think it's also it's also directly kind of looking at the fact that a lot of people don't. And that that's like, because we have Lucy, who I think, and I think she grows on this a little bit throughout the book. But Lucy does not respect Eden's religion to the same degree that she expects, respects Avi's religion. Absolutely. I think, I think Lucy is the character who sees... Uh, Eden's paganism as a phase and Lucy even like assures uh, Eden's mother that it's a phase and we have yeah. that phrased as Lucy kind of lying to protect Eden but I don't 
I, I mean, I think Lucy believes that. I think Lucy genuinely believes that it is a phase for Eden. Um, and they're like best friends. I mean, maybe not best friends, but like good friends who have been friends for a very long time. So, okay, I love with Eden's approach to paganism. I love that she is being very respectful and finding it in her own roots. She is a Celtic reconstructionist pagan. She is going back to mm-hmm. the pre-colonial Irish history pre-Christian Irish history and finding the traditions and the gods that belong to her and making it really meaningful for her. And that's extremely important Mm -hmm. to me. I know I've talked before about uh, um, cultural appropriation and paganism and how mainstream sort of pop paganism I find very irresponsible (laughs) in terms of where you draw traditions and herbs and things from. She is polytheistic, and that's a very important tenet for her. And what I really, really loved about the way she describes polytheism, she says at one point, polytheism allows for kind of radical respect of other religions, because when you're polytheistic, you believe and accept the existence of other gods, and you may not devote yourself or serve many other gods. Um, You may have your one or two deities that you serve and she primarily serves Bridget but she has a few others I love that also because Bridget um was canonized as a saint and that was part of sort of Christian appropriation of Celtic paganism and I Mm. love that she's taking that and distinguishing it and making it her own uh the history Mm -hmm. (laughs) of pagan deities being canonized is fascinating and it's something everybody should read up on but she says like yeah I can respect you worshiping and serving your god because, like, I am open to your God existing and having power and doing things. And I would like you to extend that same respect to me, please. In many ways, I think she's the one who is the most thoughtful about her practice. I think she is the one who's, well, she spent the most time, like, considering it and being really thoughtful and self-reflective and also, yeah, thinking about how her practice interacts with with other people and how her religion fits into um or like how she can sort of see other people's religions through the lens of her own and yeah i think eden's an incredibly like intentional interesting smart character and i i just i love her she's great the other aspect that i really enjoyed is when um they're they're playing truth or dare and uh, Michael asks her, like, what's the craziest spell you ever cast? And she's just like, I don't cast spells. That's not part of my practice at all. Mm-hmm. And Lucy's like, well, you used to. You had that book of spells. And she's like, yeah, when I was like 11 and I was just exploring this for the first time. But mm-hmm. like, that was kind of nonsense. I guess I did a love spell once. It wasn't real magic. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. and I I love that a lot when she's like because again she really takes this kind of pop idea of what paganism is and is like yeah no I don't do that I like I have a goddess who I serve and I put offerings out for and I like have my own approach to things but like I don't have to be Wiccan and I don't have to do spells and I have my own practice. And I think that's very, very cool. And I want to put out Mm -hmm. a tiny shout out right now to a podcast that I discovered recently uh, from actually Seth Day, who is the producer of Rad Child podcast, which is also on our network. Go donate to their fundraiser. It's called Mini Magic, and it is a children's podcast uh, about paganism. And it's really wonderful. Um, My daughter has gotten very into it. 
And it was great because, like, she listened to it at some point. I wasn't there. But then, like, a little later, she was like, Mom, what's a green witch? And I was like, hey, I'm so glad you asked. I'm a green witch. Let's talk about this. Um, and mm-hmm. we talked about, like, the different uh, branches of practicing paganism there are. Um, and it was really, really cool. So I highly recommend that if you're somebody with small children in your life. Or honestly, even if you just want, like, a brief overview of what paganism can look like. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's got like little 12 to 15 minute episodes. Very manageable. That's really cool. Neat. It's very cool. Yeah, Eden Eden is really, I wish we had more time with Eden in this book. That's one of the like things that I wish was expanded on more because I think she's a really great character. So one of the things that I really liked about this book and like is one of the things that I like want more from, this is, I, I agree with you on a sequel would be nice, is I think, but I also really like how it's done. I think that this book does a really good job of showing characters who have a lot of who like all have their own flaws and prejudices and stuff and who grow over the course of the book but don't finish growing by the end of the book mm-hmm. but they're like starting they're working on it and i think that's very like like in some ways the like lack of resolution is like unsatisfying like mm-hmm. it's like oh you have so much more to go but there are a lot of ways in which it's like really refreshing i think that mm-hmm. we have these characters who have a long ways to go still, but we get to see them start. And yeah. and that's really cool. And so the, the reason that this reminded me of it is because I think Lucy's Lucy's orientation to Eden is one of those things where I think by the end of the book, she is starting to be a little bit more respectful of the fact that Eden does actually have a legitimate religion of her own and that it deserves as much respect as Lucy's does. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, we do. I mean, we really see all of the characters grow and it's lovely. It's such a powerful testament to what interfaith community can do. And uh, I love that. I think interfaith community is so important because like you can learn from each other and learn to be kind to each other and we see that happening and it's kind of unique because the group already knew each other like Lucy, Max, Avi, and Eden have been meeting up for ages but Michael being an atheist and getting thrown into this mix really challenges everybody especially Lucy because I, I think she has been able to sort of contextualize other people and part of the way she does that is by not accepting things that are challenging for her right like Eden's <laughs> faith um and Abby she kind of is just like well Judaism is kind of like Christianity so I can just accept this and so by having someone thrown into this mix who's quite different uh, has a completely different paradigm and isn't really a known entity and his family isn't Catholic because everybody else's families except for Avi uh, are Catholic or practice a religion and everybody has to just kind of adjust especially when Lucy spoiler alert falls for Michael and and I think the way that they navigate their relationship is so well done they both learn you know they both find ways to be kinder to each other and to accept each other yeah I do I really love how they both like how Lucy sort of gets to reevaluate some of her prejudices and preconceived notions about atheism mm-hmm. and atheists um like I love the conversation where where she has to confront the fact that like some people just don't have a religion and nothing happened to make them lose their faith they just don't see the world the same way you do 
And I think that's really, really interesting. I really like that. Um, but then also, I think we we really get to see by the end of the book, Michael starting to appreciate some of the things that religion has to offer. He's not becoming religious, but he is appreciating like some of the things that the, the different traditions give to the people who practice them. Well, it's all about where you find meaning, right? And it's understanding mm-hmm. that other people, people that you care about and respect, can find meaning in a completely different paradigm. And also that somebody can respect what you believe without also believing it. Which I think especially for people raised in more restrictive religious environments can be very challenging. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons we see Lucy having so much trouble accepting that because when you're raised in an environment that preaches one true faith, it's very, very difficult to deconstruct that and to understand yeah. that you can be good <laughs> without God and find meaning without mm-hmm. uh, theology. And that's one of the re- reasons I really appreciated there being an atheist character mm-hmm. and like some talking about atheism and a, and a agnosticism this is part of why I was just thinking about it when you were talking about faith a minute ago this is why I have been calling this series like faith spirituality and religion because faith isn't really a word that has much meaning to me anymore um like Mm -hmm. for my personal practice uh Mm -hmm. to me faith is a very Christian term and I'm sure that like it is used in other contexts, but just for me, that's the connotation. Um, mm-hmm. There's this difference. You can have spirituality or practice religion without necessarily having faith that a higher power is controlling everything, you know, mm-hmm. or like Absolutely. working everything together for good, if I'm going to use biblical language. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's really, that's something that this book works with a little bit. Faith and spirituality are not the same word, and they don't have the mm-hmm. same content connotations. Religion and faith aren't synonyms either. Uh, and yeah. I mean, it's not it's not worked with explicitly, but this sort of uh, <coughs> shall we say uh, trinity of terms was really going around my head a lot. I was really really thinking a lot about the different words that we use for that spiritual spoke in the wellness wheel because I started practicing I think of myself as kind of agnostic pagan and I started practicing it because my my counselor my abuse counselor told me okay religion has been a huge part of your life and you can't just like if you just lose it and don't replace it with anything you're gonna really really struggle so I deliberately found something I was like okay what do I like what did I like about practicing Christianity well Mm -hmm. I liked the liturgical calendar I liked there being a rhythm to my year so can I find something that also provides me with the rhythm to the year. Oh, hey, look, the liturgical calendar is based on the pagan wheel of the year. Okay. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And like, it's just, it really, it just really made me think about that process of like finding something where I'm still very uncomfortable with the concept of religion and faith, but I'm okay with it as spirituality. I'm okay with it thinking about it that way. But the paradigm of how I think about it is so, so, so completely different from the paradigm of how I thought about Christianity when I was identifying as a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, and I think it's, yeah, this this book really does come at all the different angles of faith, spirituality, 
religion practice community too like mm-hmm. i think it's interacting with with that aspect a lot as well um and like one of the things can i spoil the end a little bit how do we feel about i that? mean this book has been out for several years i think you can spoil the end i do like i really love that towards the end of the book we have um so michael michael does something like really really shitty towards the end of the mm-hmm. book um and like hurts his friends hurts his community um in a really uh in a really intense way and one of the ways that he works through that and um and and eventually starts to reconcile with his friends is through is not in any way ad- adopting Christianity or becoming Christian, but through thinking about some of the ways in which Christianity thinks about wrongdoing and forgiveness and reconciliation and thinking about how, what of those principles are valuable and how he can apply them to his own situation. And I think really what he's thinking about there is like, how do people live in community with each other? And I really like that. And I really love there's a scene at the end where basically like Michael asks Lucy to like hear his confession essentially. And then she um, like assigns him like penance quote unquote, but like concrete things that he can do to not to make up for what he did, but to make reparations. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. I think that's like a really powerful thing. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up because I did want to talk about the ending and um while being mindful of time, I want to talk about it very briefly because mm. I suspected that you and I would have slightly different takes on the ending, and I think that we do. Um, okay. <laughs> so that not with the confession thing. I think that was a beautifully written scene. I think that's so well done um, and such a, mm. such a lovely uh, expression of, of admiring and respecting her faith system. I think that this book does a really good job of showing that there's not really any one wrong form of activism. And Mm. I think I, I disagree that what Michael does hurts his community. I think he hurts his friends by not being honest. And that's what, um, Lucy calls him out on mostly is that he wasn't honest with her about what he was doing. But Mm -hmm. I think we do see when he talks to Jenny that his actions also do some good because they call attention to this situation and Mm -hmm. they create a press buzz and you know it is frankly not something the school should have done so of course we have this is something um dealing with the, the unjust firing of a teacher and we do see that the teacher is saying well I just want to move on I don't really want to get dragged into this but the action is really meaningful for Jenny, and I don't think we can overlook that. Um, mm-hmm. Jenny is somebody who's been the scapegoat for what's going on, even though she's not doing anything wrong. She is gay, but she just doesn't talk about it much at school. And Michael's actions do a lot for her, and he manages to protect her from being harmed by them. And they start a new friendship through that. And I really appreciate it that, that it's showed in this nuanced way of... This wasn't a great way to approach this in terms of the rules of the school um, and in terms of your friends asked you not to do it, but it still accomplishes something that their other actions did not. Mm -hmm. And I think that's significant. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, 
I think that you make good points and I think I do have a slightly different take, but I also think your take is valid. And I think that's one of the really, well, I think one of the really valuable things is I think that this book is portraying a really complicated situation. Like I think, yeah, we do see that like what he does does end up doing good, but I think we also, I think the book also does a good job of sort of portraying that like it does end up doing good. He also messed up in that he, like Michael was trying to speak on behalf of like he was not part of the community that was being harmed directly mm-hmm. by what he was trying to speak on behalf of and he was not consulting that community mm-hmm. in what he did and I think he has to like really grapple with with that something that he did wrong and I think he does I think the book engages with that that I really like yeah and I also think the book engages with the fact that like ultimately like, yes, he'd been thinking about it for a while, but, like, when Michael did what he did, he was not, he was at least half motivated by, like, being really angry about something else and just wanting to fuck shit up. Yeah. This is where the question of motivation versus action comes in, right? Does mm-hmm. somebody not having the best motivation for something undo any good done by that action? I don't think it undoes it, but I think it's something that still has to be, like reckoned with and I think I think the book does a good job of that mm-hmm. of both acknowledging that like yeah maybe what Michael did did um do some good but also also did harm and also was not wasn't gone about in the way that it should have been right and I, I mean Perhaps. I would agree in terms of like in terms of maintaining his friendships yes it was mm. not gone about in the right way and and he has to deal with the consequences um this mm-hmm. is making me think of his father who we haven't talked about at all very 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 quickly uh michael and his father are mm-hmm. set up as two opposites on the spectrum of somebody who follows the rules all the time and somebody who really has no respect for the rules somebody who has no mm-hmm. respect for the rules which is michael and somebody who has way too much respect for the rules which is his father um mm-hmm. we don't have time to go into that whole relationship but I think it's wonderful and there is an excellent point where Michael's mother intervenes and says has either of you considered that there may possibly be a gray area here (laughs) Um, and it's a wonderful moment and it's a turning point for the book Uh, and Mm -hmm. I think this is why I was excited to talk with you specifically about this because I think you and I are a little bit on these end of the spectrum and and our conversation where I like to fuck shit up and and Mm -hmm. you like to follow the rules and not in a like rigid way like his father but you like to like do change from the inside Um, Mm -hmm. and that's why I was really excited to have this conversation because I think we represent the duality that is represented in this book yeah no I think that that's true um yeah and and I like I do love that Michael's mother is is that voice of like maybe neither of you are wrong and neither of you are right (laughs) um yeah and and it's about sort of finding middle grounds um Mm -hmm. can I can I briefly mention one more thing that I love about the ending of this book Mm -hmm. um I love that the ending, like, keeping in mind that we, yeah, we've talked about there there are a lot of nuanced ways to see what sort of Michael does, like, before the end of the book. But I love that the book ends, like, one of Michael's, like, last actions is, again, sort of standing up against the school, but in a way that is, like, like, he is now advocating on behalf of somebody who absolutely wants 
to like he is helping somebody make a stand that they're already making, which is he um like argues Max's cloak case with the principal and yes. is like no, you're actually like you are actually treating him differently than the other students read this and like you should follow your own rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he actually makes a difference. And it's really I think it's a really good example of like actually helping somebody make a case they're already trying to make but just like using your kind of like different positioning to do that yes i think another really important part of that is starting to recognize the uh the principal's humanity which is something that gradually happens throughout the book he starts off as this like he's a priest and he's sort of a paragon of everything michael doesn't like and throughout the book he gradually gets humanized and it becomes clear that he's not actually interested in being a big authoritarian figure. He is interested in making this little community get along as best as it can. Um, I But I think there are also no excuses made mm-hmm. for the things that are harmful, which is really, really what I appreciate so much about this. It's just there, are, there aren't, no bad behavior is excused. But this book really, really, really pushes for seeing the world in shades of gray in a way that that is very effective and that I like a lot. Yeah, it's a really good book. Um, it's a fun read. I think it's a complicated, interesting read, and you should read it. Heretics Anonymous by Katie Henry. Very good. This is Katie and I talked about the concept of responsibly writing about religion mm. for teens. This is an example of very responsible writing for teens about religion. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at tefferbear and at thebalesosaurus. If you like the show, which I assume you do since you just listened this episode to the end, and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great bur- burks. You can get all kinds of great perks, even, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. I just released our first Patreon video where I just talked about our upcoming schedule. Uh, It's awkward because I don't do videos much, but hey, if you want to see me awkwardly talk about books on a video, subscribe to us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire, Catherine Reshi, Lizzie Tenhove, Maddie Dever, Chantal Thomas, Megan Jane, Emily Patton, and Emmett Cameron. You all are so great. Mm-hmm. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Tee Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. This really helps more than you know. Um, subscribing to us on Spotify, following us on social media and engaging with our posts, or by sharing this episode with a friend, maybe a friend who's really interested in interfaith stuff, or maybe a friend who should be more interested in interfaith stuff. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tepper Ademian. Hey, that's me! And edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network, including uh, Rad Child Podcast, which I shouted out earlier, Gaze in the Woods, which is run by our patron Emmett Cameron, um, Nat Natural Toonie, which a number of our 
patrons and our editor are on, and a lot of other shows. So definitely head to upfordnetwork.com and find your new second favorite show because we're your favorite right today. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Tom Zalatni, executive producer of the Upford Network and host and producer of Up for Discussion, a podcast about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. But wait, isn't Up for Discussion a comedy podcast? It sure was, but things change. It's a food show now, and it's a very, very good food show. Every week, I dig into a different ingredient, dish, meal, or cuisine with help from friends and guest experts who know way more about this stuff than I do. Do you like food? Of course you do. You're a person. So you will like this show. Go listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Up for discussion. It's a food podcast now. Brought to you by the Upford Network. Hi there. I'm Nick Hughes, the son. And I am James Hughes, the father. Together, we co-host Canada's Young Leaders, a podcast exploring bold ideas for our country's future. Our third and final season focuses specifically on climate change, how we got here, and where we need to go. We'll be speaking with young environmental leaders about the roles of governments, corporations, and individuals in combating this crisis, and also thinking about the role of the COVID-19 pandemic in the climate movement. So, if you're someone who is concerned about climate change and wants to learn more, check out Canada's Young Leaders, a very proud member of the Upford Network.